Welcome to Beach Grove United Methodist Church's sermon podcast for Sunday, April 18th, the third Sunday of Easter. Thank you for listening this week. And if you would like to view the service in its entirety, please go to our Facebook or YouTube page by following one of the links in the podcast notes. Also, we would like to invite you to please support our ministry here at Beach Grove through your tithes and offerings. We have both online and physical giving opportunities, and we encourage you to reach out to us using the contact information in the podcast notes if you have any questions about giving. To stay connected each week, we invite you to go like our Facebook page, subscribe to our YouTube channel, or subscribe to this podcast on your favorite podcasting platform. We hope you enjoy this week's message, and don't forget to share it with others. This week's scripture lesson comes from 1 John chapter 3, verses 1 through 10. See what love the Father has given us, that we should be called children of God, for that is what we are. The reason the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now. What we will be has not yet been revealed. What we do is this, when he is revealed, we will be like him, for we will see him as he is. And all who have this hope in him purify themselves just as he is pure. Everyone who commits sin is guilty of lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he was revealed to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him sins. No one who who sins has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Everyone who does what is right is righteous, just as he is righteous. Everyone who commits sin is a child of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The Son of God was revealed for this purpose, to destroy the works of the devil. Those who have been born of God do not sin, because God's seed abides in them. They cannot sin, because they have been born of God. The children of God and the children of the devil are revealed in this way. All who do not do what is right are not from God nor are those who do not love their brothers and sisters. This is the word of God for us, the people of God. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Holy God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of each one of our hearts be holy and pleasing to you. And through your word for us this day, we would continue to learn, grow, and mature in our faith, and that we would learn to share it with others. Amen. So last week, Bob did a wonderful job of filling in. Thank you so much. But he introduced all of us to this concept that stems from our Wesleyan theological heritage known as Christian perfection. And it is this notion of perfection that seeks to understand perfection not as a model of purity and spotlessness, but instead focus on perfection as a manner of the work that God does in our lives, rather than anything that we think we can do in order to be perfect. And in that, he not only introduced us to this idea of Christian perfection, but invited us to consider how we recognize that relationship that God desires for us to have. And we named that as justification, or the overflowing of God's grace that brings us into right relationship with God. You know, I have always loved running. My mom often notes that I never actually learned how to walk. I just learned how to run. And I think my son did the same thing. 
I walked maybe a day and then immediately was going 500 miles an hour. But I have not always been able to run. You see, I blew out my knee for the first time in college and then again while I was in seminary, which invited a nice little surgical procedure to fix. And after that, it was some time before I felt comfortable getting back into running. But you know, when I first, when I began my first year of ministry, I decided, you know what, all right, let's get back into running. I, I needed to run again. I needed to take care of myself in that way. But you know what? It went south very quickly. I started to develop what are known as shin splints, which is like the actual tearing of the muscle away from your shin bone. It is not comfortable at all. Now, I knew it was shin splints, and so I tried to cycle through all of my regular things that I do and try to deal with all of the common denominators to try and fix it. I thought it was my shoes, so I bought me shoes. I, I thought I wasn't stretching properly, so I would go through a pre-run routine of making sure all of my muscles were stretched out, but that pain never went away. Finally, after a couple of weeks of complaining, my wife, who loves me dearly and hates to hear me complain, said that I needed to see a doctor. Now, I will admit that I do not like to go see doctors because doctors always tell you when things are wrong. <laughs> and so I was hesitant at first, but finally went and caught help. You know, there's so much insight into thinking about our relationship with God in the same way. There is this notion in which many of us probably do not like going to doctors because they know that they are going to tell us everything that is wrong, or we may feel as though it costs too much money. But doctors are always there, ready to help, and hopefully in our best interest, bring us back to good health. We just sometimes need to admit that something is wrong and go see them, or sometimes we need to see them before anything is wrong so that they can help us beforehand. I've long thought that when it comes to our relationship with God, we have some of these same stages as well. We have the part where we, where we have to acknowledge that there is something that is going on, and that we need the care that we need to receive, and we need to enter into this relationship. At some point in time, we have to admit that there is somebody on the other side who cares about us, and wants to take care of us. And we have to admit that we need care for it. In the epistle that is 1 John, we encounter this manner of grace. As the epistle writer invites us to consider what our relationship with God looks like and means in our lives. This sets us up to consider what it means to be the perfect Christian. That's right, a perfect Christian. And this is what we are looking at this Easter season. As we journey through Easter time, we're going to unpack what this looks like and how that living leads us on this path to Christian perfection. And as Bob mentioned last week, perfection is a journey. To be perfect is something we earnestly strive after and hope for. And it is in that striving that we learn and grow and mature as Christians. You see, 1 John is a great letter that invites us to reflect on this notion of perfection, but more deeply, the notion of how we are striving to be perfect. And so last week we heard the epistle writer's opening lines, his essential thesis. We heard from the scripture, God is light, and we are going to hear notions of this over the next month or so. And we include in this manner the nature in which God is filled with love, fills us with love and grace. And we learn from this manner the ways in which we are transformed. Our eyes are open to God's work in our lives. 
We will often note this as that manner of justification that Bob talked about last week. That at some point in time, we move into relationship with God. No longer is it just God loving us unconditionally, but it is the fact that we would like to love God back, and that we want to love God's creation. We often will note this as God's grace for our lives. Basically, God is love. This week, we will begin to get into the weeds of what a relationship looks like. We dive specifically into this aspect of sin. You see, if we know we are justified, if we know we are made righteous through our acknowledgement of God's already abiding grace, then what does that mean for our life in God? And what does it mean to separate from that relationship with God? As we turn our attention to the scripture passage before us today, we see that John recaps this thesis of identifying that godly relationship when he says, See what love the Father has given us, that we should be called children of God. And that is what we are. The reason the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Over and over again, we hear this motif that God is love. And that we as the children of God, and that we as part of creation, are loved unconditionally. This is used in John over and over again to introduce us to this manner of God's grace. We wrestle with this word again, this word of grace. We wrestle with it because grace seems so illogical. It seems so counter against the way that we live our lives. And yet, as we continue to learn about who God is... We continue to see this unconditional nature of what God has done for us. And yet there is something in that that we just cannot quite come to grips with. And so we bring in this concept. John introduces us to this concept of what is our Christian relationship with, not God, but the world. Namely, we wrestle with this word, sin. Because it's not enough in our Christian worldview to boldly proclaim that God's love forgives our sin, if we do not first understand the nature of sin or its draw or role in our lives. Sin is somewhat of a tricky concept that has been made more complicated because of what has become the way that we have traditionally defined sin. We have come in our contemporary church to think of sin as something that is very transactional. We consider it is that we do something, we do something wrong, and we have sinned. And by that sin, sometimes we even consider that God somehow loves us less until we repent of that sin. Now, I can't even begin to name just how harmful that kind of theology is, and even how far removed from Scripture that manner of thinking is for us. And especially as we look at our gospel, at, sorry, not at our gospel, at our epistle text today, John paints a picture of a more relational understanding of both sin and grace when it comes to our context of God's kingdom and both our personal and communal relationship with God. To sin, as a transactional system, we run the risk of turning faith into a list of rules that have to be followed to a team. 
rather than focusing on the true nature of faith in God. And so sin, and by extension, God's grace, as we read here in Scripture, is less transactional and more relational. If grace, and perfection for that matter, is about truly and fully living into our relationship with God, then sin becomes the opposite of that. If grace is living in relationship with God, then sin is separation from God. Separation from that present reality of what it means to love and nurture God. Now John does not explicitly define sin in this passage, but he does give us an insight in what it means to live in that state. He says everyone who commits sin is guilty of lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he was revealed to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him sins, and no one who sins has either seen him or known him. And so we hear a nature in this passage in which sin is connected to lawlessness. Which then begs the question, what is law? And if we are going to define law, then how does this move us from a transactional understanding to a more relational one? And here I would say we lean on our teachings from Christ. Who, as we hear in Matthew chapter 5, comes to fulfill the law. And in fulfilling the law, he points us to this notion that the law is established through many covenants. Those covenants that we looked at back in Lent. And this notion of law for us can be broken down into those two great commandments that Jesus offers to us. That order that God seeks to create. That within creation we love God and we love our neighbor. When we talk about covenant, we often looked at it in this insight. How are we loving God, and how are we loving neighbor? And sin in this environment doesn't see a checklist of rules, but instead is focused on our position of relationship with God. That Reverend Don Underwood says, when we are not in good relationship with God, typically when we're also not in good relationship with ourselves, we make decisions that are more based on selfishness and self-centered concerns. And that's when we live in a state of sin. This state of lawlessness that John talks about is not a manner of societal chaos. But lawlessness is more a sense of lostness. Lostness from God's love. Lostness from God's grace. We feel lost without God's love, and therefore the decisions that we make, the way that we live our lives, does not flow from God. This can lead even the most seemingly well-intentioned people to make decisions that cause harm to others and to God's creation. They can create systems of oppression, injustice. They can create systems of destruction. And sin in this understanding is something that we do, inhibits, or gets in the way of our relationship with God. This ideology is what leaves John to say, everyone who commits sin is a child of the devil. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The Son of God was revealed for this purpose, to destroy the works of the devil. Those who have been born of God do not sin, because God's seed abides in them. 
You know, whether we want to attribute sin to some embodiment of a devil figure, or we consider the basic nature of humanity, we see that the further we remove our daily spirituality away from God, the further away from God's perfect intentions we move. For John, this is identified to what feels extreme to us in saying that those who have been born of God do not sin. Because we can, yes, in this instance, be born of God in the biblical sense and yet be disconnected from God spiritually. So as not to live fully into who God calls us to be. This was a question that Bob asked when he came into my office trying to prepare for his message last week, which did not deal with this specific verse. But like a good preacher, Bob read the whole letter to get the insight to help him to understand the verses that were in front of him for the week that he was preaching. And he came to me and asked how people who were born of God would not sin. And I told him this. That let us think for a second and imagine that we live fully within the context of who God calls us to be. That we at all times in our life feel so connected to God. That we live fully into who God calls us to be and to who God created us to be. That would be a very different life than as we wrestle with what it means to be in relationship with God. I do believe that, the, that John speaks truth because when it comes to talking about Christian perfection, we have to understand what perfection truly means. And what theologians pick up on here when they read John, or at least this first letter of John, is the nature in which a perfect Christian, or that Christian who lives in God's love perfectly, the love of God emanates so fully from them that all around them know who their God is. And there's no checklist. There's no specific set of rules, but there is only love. We do not reach perfection because we don't sin, but we don't sin because we have reached perfection. Fully living into God's love and grace. Yes, this may mean that we mess up from time to time. And yet we know that we have a gracious God who's always extending his hand of love and forgiveness towards us. Even when we mess up. So then what does this truly mean for sin and evil and even something like temptation in our lives? Because unfortunately, upon acknowledgement of God's grace and, and our practice of the sacrament of baptism, we are not immediately transported to a heavenly place that is perfect and rids us of temptation and the evils that exist in our world as much as we would like it to. But we continue to live in a world that seeks to draw us away from God's grace. We often put selfish ambitions ahead of the kingdom people we are called to be, and we turn on our we turn on society and even on our faith when we feel our personal lives threatened. And sometimes we even use God to justify our hatred and bigotry towards others. Sin, evil, temptation. They're all unfortunate byproducts of living in a broken world driven by human ambition and power. 
And therefore, the answer that John is trying to draw us towards is how do we live and exist in this world in a manner that calls us to rely upon God's grace and love rather than our own selfish understandings of power or ambition. It is the manner in which God's grace transforms us that overcomes sin and temptation in our lives and overcomes this sense of feeling like God's love is a choice between right and wrong. That transactional sense leads us to devalue ourselves and it devalues the nature in which God's love and grace exist in our lives unconditionally. When we sin, it is often our own guilt that leads to irreparable harm in our relationship with God when all we have to do is re-encounter God. Re-encounter God's love just as we see in the story of the prodigal son when he returns to the arms of his father. Imagine the transformational change that happens after that story. When the boy, having been re-welcomed by the father, lives life anew, knowing that his father loves him unconditionally. And so too does our relational understanding of God transcend our human frailty, our guilty feelings. When grace transforms us, we leave the experience as a new person. And when that changes how we live in the world, it leads us to become the transformation we have experienced and calls us fully as disciples in the kingdom of heaven. So no, temptation and evil are not going away in this world. We are, by all accounts, living in sin. But you know what the great thing about God's love is? We don't have to be defined by that sin. We don't have to be defined by that separating relationship with God. We don't have to continue to perpetuate the, that nature of sin that harms our relationship with both God and humanity. As we learn from Christ, we have two simple yet monumental narratives. Love God and love neighbor. And when we embody these two narratives, we embody God's grace and reside within the Spirit of God. And we ourselves, through the love and grace of Jesus Christ, have fulfilled the law through Christ himself. This is the journey we embark on as we seek some sense of sanctification in our lives, some manner of perfection that we are striving towards. And this is the great thing about our understanding of grace, is that it creates space in our life that sees perfection as something that is actually attainable, even in our broken nature. And when we talk about sin, we cannot talk about it in a manner that is devoid of God's grace. Yes, there is a manner of repentance and reconciliation. But it is not because God is mad at us or loves us less because we have made mistakes. Rather, it is because we grow and mature from our repentance. Just as we heal the bonds between friends through asking forgiveness, so too do we ourselves recognize the barriers we have created in our relationships with God. And we use repentance and forgiveness as a manner to reconcile, to redeem, and to move into right relationship. We do not ask forgiveness to magic. We do not ask for reconciliation to magically ask for God's forgiveness. God has already done that. We ask forgiveness to forgive ourselves. So that the reconciliation process can begin in our own hearts. 
so that we can recognize the work that God is already doing. I think now more than ever, this is such a vital understanding when it comes to what our relationship with God looks like, when it comes to the relationship between sin and grace. We've caused so much pain and harm by identifying sin in a transactional way. We have strayed folks from the true nature of God's abiding love in their lives, and honestly, we have turned God into a vengeful and angry God who punishes people, when in fact, God is love. John, in the connection to the teachings of Jesus, invites us to consider the role of God's love and grace, and how they play a role in our lives even when we exist in sin. We must be willing to constantly be aware of what our relationship with God looks like. To live in sin is to live without God. It does not mean we are breaking arbitrary rules we have somehow collected as a society. But it means to exist without God. And what are we doing to put ourselves in those situations? To live with God does not mean we do not make mistakes. Don't, don't hear me. But when we make them, we know that we, we know what it means to live and exist in God's grace. We know that God forgives us. It does not mean we go out and we do things over and over again because we know God will forgive us. But it means recognizing the way and nature that the way and the nature in which God's grace calls us to be better people. To be better towards God and to be better towards one another. Amen.